0: Hi, it's Holly here, and we're together again at the second location. I am continuing our examination of the Florida furniture store murders and the unjust conviction of Tommy Ziegler. Let's get right into it. Last episode, I talked about the second witness that came forward to implicate Tommy. Personally, I think both of these witnesses' accounts are crazy and utterly unbelievable. But for some reason, the police swallowed them, hook, line, and sinker. So now, it's December 26th two days after the murders, and Tommy is the police's only suspect. And December 26th, it's a big day for Detective Fry. First, he continues on with what seems to me to be an illegal search at the furniture store. And we'll talk about the legality of that search in just a minute. And then he goes to the hospital to interrogate Tommy. Tommy's got money, and his attorney is there, and the lawyer gives a solid hell no to Fry's request to speak to his client. Now, Tommy's lawyer, Terry Hadley, does report to the police the very next day Tommy's version of the events of Christmas Eve, basically that Eunice went to the store with her folks and Tommy arrived later with Edward Williams. And when Tommy enters the back of the store, he is beaten, shot, loses consciousness, awakes and calls for help. Now, let's talk about the ridiculous exchange at the hospital where Detective Fry wants to question Tommy. I think this next part really sums up Donald Fry. After Hadley tells Fry that Ziegler will not submit himself to Fry's questioning, Fry actually replies, Give me a half an hour with him. I'll have a confession. Fry said that to the suspect's attorney, like the lawyer was going to be like, Oh, no, I'm sorry. I had no idea you had some superhuman ability to get people to confess to murder. Go right on in, sir. Uh, can I offer you a phone book? It's the suspect's attorney, ya moron. The lawyer is not gonna let you near his client, especially if you, quote, know you can get the suspect to confess. Hadley, that's Tommy's attorney, he referred To Fry as naive and too taken with his own deductions, which I think is honestly just too kind. Fry strikes me as just plain stupid and yet totally unaware of his own idiocy. Did he honestly think that a lawyer representing the suspect would change his mind and let him question his client after he admitted to being focused on obtaining a confession, maybe using whatever means necessary? Personally, I think that Donald Fry needed to be challenged way more by other people because he walks around with a completely misplaced sense of confidence. If I thought he had any redeemable qualities, I would actually feel bad for him. It's embarrassing to be both smug and dumb all at one time. I personally believe that Detective Fry suffered from the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect To oversimplify, this principle describes when dummies are too dumb to realize that they are dummies. Uh, More accurately, it's when someone's lack of knowledge in a particular area causes them to overestimate their own abilities. I mean, they could have named it after this guy. I'm just going to say it. Maybe I was tiptoed around it before. But I don't like Donald Fry. I just see him as a guy who is looking for approval and acknowledgement. He wants to be seen as brilliant. And when it comes to the Ziegler furniture store murders, he finally can shine like a star and be the smartest person in the room for once. Because he sees something that nobody else sees, that Tommy is guilty. He absolutely relishes explaining his theory to all the other investigators. He seems like a bit of a needy show off that really finally has the spotlight. I think that Detective Fry is just the worst. Okay, so that same day, December 26th, like I said, is a big day. He takes Hadley on a walk through the, of the crime scene. It was just two days after the murders and there weren't any lab results yet. So even though Fry has nothing to back up his theory that Tommy had orchestrated the murders himself, Fry still has complete confidence in this theory and he immediately dismisses anything that would challenge Tommy's guilt. So Fry gives Hadley a tour of the crime scene. Fry pointed out a trail of blood, and he explains what that blood trail means. Basically, that after killing his four victims, Tommy had walked to the phone at the customer service counter and called for help, then shot himself and went to the front of the store and waited for the help to arrive. Fry is stating this all like it's an established fact, not just a theory. The problem is that the test results don't support his theory. The blood typing tests show that Fry's explanation of that blood trail was wrong. That wasn't Tommy's blood type in that trail of blood. And I think that trail of blood from the phone of the customer service desk to the front of the store is what started all the speculation about Tommy being the murderer. Once this theory was embraced, there was no letting go. I'm going to let you know that Tommy will be charged with murder before the test results come back, showing that wasn't his blood from the phone to the front door. The theory was wrong, but once he is charged with murder, no one wants to admit that they were wrong. So they just keep pushing forward. Let's talk about why the officers thought they didn't need a search warrant to search and seize items from the furniture store. The officers decided there was no need to obtain a warrant because it was a crime scene where a murder had occurred. They were operating under the theory of the crime scene exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. The problem is that three years after Tommy's trial, the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down the crime scene exception in Mincy versus Arizona. According to the Supreme Court ruling, the mere fact that a murder has occurred at the site does not create exigent circumstances that would nullify the need for a warrant. To have exigent circumstances and thus not need a warrant, there must be a belief that evidence will be lost, destroyed, or removed in the time that it would take to get a warrant. Clearly that is not the case at the furniture store. The court went on to say that the seriousness of the underlying offense in itself does not justify a warrantless search. But there are things that officers can do without a warrant, such as enter and search for victims or the killer, and once inside, anything clearly visible to the officers can be seized under the plain sight doctrine, which is exactly what it sounds like. If it's clearly visible and the officers are lawfully on the scene, the item can be seized. If you can see it, you can seize it. Also, the investigators are permitted to secure the scene to safeguard evidence while a warrant is being obtained. Basically, the rule is once all the victims are located and it's determined the killer is not on the scene or he's in custody, the emergency is over and the scene should be secured while a warrant is obtained. With a warrant in hand, a search can proceed. Sadly, Mincy's opinion was handed down three years after the murders at the Ziegler store, but that doesn't make the search any less unconstitutional as the court's holding applied to earlier searches as well. This wasn't just a going forward thing. We're we're not going to do this shit anymore type of thing. When Ziegler's attorneys raised the ruling in Mincy on appeal, the appellate court ruled that the holding, holding did not apply to Ziegler because Tommy had invited the police to the store when he called for help. This is just a complete bullshit ruling. I think the Mincy ruling was misinterpreted by this appellate court. I don't think calling the police equates to a consent to search the premises. The appellate court completely misread Mincy because they didn't want to exclude the evidence found in the store. But that's exactly what they should have done. You can't choose to not apply the constitutional protections of the Bill of Rights because you think that doing so will set up free a criminal. Mincy had killed a cop and his constitutional rights had been stomped on, so he wasn't charged. That's just how shit shakes out sometimes. You need to make sure the rights of criminals are protected. That's how you keep innocent people out of prison which I feel is important. They searched the store without a warrant and without an ex- exception to the warrant requirement. I think that any evidence that wasn't in plain sight should have been tossed, but it wasn't. During the search on December 26th, Detective Fry forced open a locked desk drawer. And keep in mind, the search of this locked desk drawer is happening two days after the murders. The victims have been removed from the scene, and there is no killer loose on the premises. There are no exigent circumstances, no emergency. So according to the Supreme Court, Fry should have gotten a search warrant, but he didn't. And if you value your privacy or your property rights at all don't call this a technicality because the fourth amendment is not a technicality it's what protects us from the stormtroopers or perhaps more realistically the gestapo rummaging through our homes go ahead and say that you don't have anything to hide it's not the point and beyond that it's wrong we all have something to hide or we wouldn't have curtains okay so what's in that damn locked desk drawer three term life insurance policies they were all applied for in September of 1975, about three months before the murders. There was a $250,000 policy on Tommy and two $250,000 policies from two different insurers on Eunice. So it's motive. Motive is what they found in that drawer. The police finally have some evidence to use against Tommy. It's not just gut feelings type shit anymore. But it's a really weak motive because usually when someone is killed for insurance policy payouts, the killer is having some serious financial difficulties. Tommy is secure financially. He is 29 and a millionaire with an expanding empire in 1975. He lives a quiet life well below his means. Even Detective Fry admits that he couldn't find any irregularities in Tommy's finances. Tommy has more to lose than to gain by plotting to kill his wife for insurance money. He is the only child of people who own a successful family business, and they are expanding into very profitable rental properties. Things are going great for Tommy. He had no need for insurance money, but Fry believes that Tommy wants the insurance money to pay off the new car that they had bought, a car that Tommy had bought for Eunice and the in-ground pool that he and Eunice had just installed at their home. Fry honestly believe that Tommy a millionaire, murdered his wife, in-laws, and a longtime customer to pay off about $20,000 in debts that he could have easily covered. Debts that are the type that we all have. Seriously, who among us at some point didn't have an auto loan that they were making payments on? Now, how many of us killed four people to pay off said loan? I'm not thinking many hands just shot up. Also, the in-ground poll just makes me think they were really super excited about raising some kids. And that Tommy is not planning a murder, but planning a future with a young family. But keep an eye on that $500,000 in insurance money because someone else has their eyes on it. Maddie Mays, Charlie's wife. She sues the Zigglers over her husband's death inside their store. A lawsuit payout. For the Mays family really hinges on Charlie being an innocent victim and not a murderer or robber. And I think that's one of the reasons why we keep hearing that bullshit story about Charlie going to pick up a TV after hours at the store on Christmas Eve. A TV that he has no receipt for. On January 5th, Maddie Mays filed an injunction to prohibit the Zieglers from spending any of the insurance money from Eunice's two policies. And then days later, she sued the Zieglers for one million dollars. The Zigglers hadn't even filed a claim on the insurance policy, but Maddie Mays has an injunction filed within 12 days of the murder. Time's not a-wasting with her. I cannot emphasize how much easier it would be for her to prevail in her lawsuit if Charlie Mays is a customer and not a burglar that night. It's not just Charlie Mays' reputation on the line any longer, and he was a much-loved member of his community, but a million-dollar lawsuit is at stake. Eventually, the lawsuit is settled and Maddie Mays does receive a payout. And if Charlie was an innocent victim, she deserves one. But me? I'm not convinced of his innocence. So let's continue on with the other evidence found in the week's long search of the store. We have the insurance policies from a locked desk drawer and eight guns. But there were other items found as well. Belton Thomas had said the guns were in a brown grocery bag during the trip to the Orange Grove. And the police found found three brown grocery bags in a cabinet in the store's rear storage area. And I don't know how he could do this, but Thomas performs the miracle of all miracles. And he was able to identify a specific grocery bag as the bag that had held the guns that night. And okay, I'm getting mad now. How the hell do you identify a brown paper bag as a specific bag? We keep all of our used plastic bags stored behind our basement door to use for dog poop pickups, and all the bags are the same to me. I don't pick one up and think, oh, I just carried some eggs home in this bag. Oh, and this other bag just had Pop-Tarts in it. They are identical and indistinguishable from each other. Other than perhaps the store's name on the bag, but all Walmart bags look alike. All food line bags look alike. You get it. The fact that the police would even ask Thomas to pick a bag out of a lineup just shows the type of asses they are and implies that Thomas will say anything if he thinks it's what the police want to hear. I mean, really, they didn't ask Thomas to pick Tommy out of a lineup or even describe Tommy other than call him a white guy, but they have Thomas identify a random brown paper bag out of a lineup? This paper bag that Thomas identified as the bag that held the guns at the orange grove was found in a cabinet in the back area of the store. In those same cabinets, the police found a blue towel and 38 rounds and 38 cartridges. This seems to line up with Thomas and William's stories. William said that the gun was wrapped in a cloth when Tommy tried unsuccessfully to shoot him. And Curtis Dunaway identifies the blue towel as the one that he kept in his car to cover holes in the upholstery. Honestly, that blue towel found inside the storeroom cabinet is one of the few pieces of evidence that truly bothers me, not because I believe Edward Williams' bullshit story about Tommy having a gun wrapped in a cloth, but because why and how did the towel go from Curtis Dunaway's car into a cabinet into the storage room? According to Tommy, that car was never at the store that night, and the towel was in the car when Curtis traded cars with Tommy earlier that evening. While Tommy claims that he never drove Curtis Dunaway's car to the store that night, I think that maybe someone else did. One of the killers. But I will get into that later. And I will also talk about the possibility that the blue towel was planted in the cabinet by somebody who had access to the crime scene after the murders, but while the police still controlled the scene. But let me back up a minute to William's claim that when Tommy tried to shoot him from the dark hallway, the gun was wrapped in a cloth. This... I just don't get quite why. Why would Tommy wrap the gun in a cloth when he tried to shoot Williams? No real reason for this is ever given other than an attempt to hide the gun from his target. But if you're going to pull a gun on an unarmed man and shoot him, do you really need to hide the gun? No, you just shoot the person. It's the type of detail that someone would put in there to try to make their story sound more believable, like more facts. And it is to idiots. But regular folks ask, why hide the gun? Is the victim not seeing the gun necessary for something? No. And the towel is small. It wouldn't muffle the sound. Besides, I don't think that Tommy ever tried to shoot Edward Williams. It's just a work of fiction written by Williams to hide his true role in the murders. The police are looking for anything at all to back up the stories from Felton, Thomas, and Edward Williams. The police found a paper bag in the store and a cloth, and they tried to turn that into evidence that substantiated their stories. While the cloth, well, that does make me question Tommy's story. But not the paper bag. That means next to nothing. There are innocent reasons why paper bags and cloths would be in the store. The existence of a paper bag in the furniture store can does not corroborate the orange grove story there aren't any guns found in the bag just a bag with some 38 casings and bullets in it also the bullets in the cabinet i don't think that means anything tommy owned guns and guns were kept in the store there were several attempted robberies in the area in fact on the same night that the murders happened there was a robbery attempt across the street it made sense for businesses to have guns for protection it's florida for heaven's sake they love guns down there Where there are guns, there are bullets, so I don't see the bullets in the cabinets as evidence that incriminates Tommy. On December 27th, three days after the murders, the Winter Garden Inn was canvassed for witnesses for the very first time. Again, three days after the murders. I guess the police were just too booked up tracking down info on Tommy's sex life to look for actual eyewitnesses to the crime. Don't worry, I will talk about the sex life aspect of this crime later, you dirty birdies. The inn is directly behind the furniture store, and its inhabitants would have had a direct view of the furniture store's rear parking lot, where according to Edward Williams, a lot of the action happened that night. But get this, you want to guess who it was that finally questioned the inn's occupants? It was Oakland's chief of police. Robert Thompson. The chief of police was once again out of his jurisdiction. Is his ass ever in Oakland? It's like Winter Garden has two police chiefs. Why the hell would Chief Thompson be the one to campus for witnesses? He should not have been even involved in the investigation after Christmas Eve. He had no authority in Winter Garden. What the hell was he doing investigating there? He just keeps popping up. It's like whack a mole with this guy. But just keep him in the back of your mind because he was across the street at the KFC just moments before the murders happened. He was the first responding officer, and he was the first officer to question witnesses from the hotel. And all of these times, he is inexplicably out of his jurisdiction. I want to point out that canvassing for witnesses is something that is usually done immediately after a crime. Like, it's one of the first things. Usually it's conducted by lower-level cops, not the chief of police from neighboring towns, But in this situation, it's even more important that witnesses in the hotel be questioned immediately. Because hotels have turnover. Three days after the murder, a lot of the people that were there on the night of the murders might have already checked out. Questioning of people in that hotel should have started the night the bodies were found. It doesn't matter that it's Christmas Eve. Four people were killed. We need to know what these people saw and heard. Now, on December 29th, Fry signed an arrest warrant for Tommy and Tommy was arrested while he was in a hospital bed. The law required that a defendant have a preliminary hearing or be indicted by a grand jury within 21 days of his arrest. The prosecution chose a preliminary hearing, but they didn't have any results back from the FBI laboratory yet, so they had to come up with something to present at the hearing if they wanted to move forward towards a trial. At this point, all they have are the insurance policies on Eunice for a motive and Detective Fry's opinion that Tommy was guilty, but nothing else. The prosecution had picked the FBI to handle most of the forensic testing in this case, and you just can't rush the FBI. In my opinion, uh, the prosecution, they could have waited to make the arrest. You know, they could have waited to charge Tommy. Tommy was hospitalized. He wasn't a risk for flight or to society at this point, even if he was a killer. So just pause a moment and wait. Let some test results come back. You know, wait till you got some proof before you charge a man with a quadruple murder. All they have at this point is a theory and an insurance policy, a theory that won't be supported by the test results when they finally start rolling on in. But they rush to charge him, and I wonder if Don Fry was behind this big push to quickly arrest Tommy. The clock is running once they charge Tommy with murder. A preliminary hearing has to be held within 21 days of his arrest, and jury selection has to start within 175 days of his arrest. From this point on, The investigation, the trial, forensic testing, absolutely, absolutely everything will be rushed. After Tommy's arrest, both Felton Thomas and Edward Williams were placed under police protection and put up at hotels at the expense of the state attorney's office. You know, for a guy who can't pay his own security deposit for an apartment, that's Williams, and a fruit picker, that's Thomas, it's pretty nice to have the state footing your hotel bill. It's like a little all expensive paid vacation and all they have to do is testify against Tommy. But don't you think it's weird that the police claim that they have the killer in custody? So there shouldn't be a need to protect these witnesses, right? Who are the witnesses afraid of? Why would they be in any danger? Are the police thinking that Tommy is going to put a hit out on these two guys? Or is the hotel stay so the state can keep an eye on their witnesses or maybe a little reward for their testimony because it doesn't seem necessary at all. But there has to be a reason behind it. Okay, the only forensic testing results that come back from the lab before the preliminary hearing were the gunshot residue tests. The tests showed that Perry and Virginia Edwards and Charlie Mays had all recently fired or handled guns. The gunshot residue on virginia's hands can be explained away because she was shot in the hand and there was visible gunpowder around the wound now perry he hadn't been shot in the hand and the gunshot residue on his hand suggests that maybe at some point during his assault perry might have actually got his hands on one of the guns at the crime scene perry maybe even had gotten off a few shots it just isn't clear now Charlie Mays also has GSR on his hands. Keep in mind, if you don't believe Felton Thomas's story about shooting the guns at the Orange Grove, then we need to find an explanation for the gunshot residue on Charlie May's hands. And I have one. Maybe Charlie shot a gun in that store that night. Maybe he wasn't picking up a TV while the store was closed. Maybe he was there for nefarious purposes. You know, a robbery or murder. The prosecution would not let the defense know about the GSR test results for months. The preliminary hearing was held on January 16th, and the key witnesses were still under protective custody. Both Thomas and Williams testify and tell their stories, but there is still no physical evidence tying Tommy to the crimes. Thomas Hale testifies that he saw Tommy driving with Eunice and turning onto Dillard, that's the street where the furniture store is located on the night of the murders. This is in stark contrast to Tommy's statement that he did not go to the store with Eunice, and that Eunice had gone to the store with her parents without him. This is basically all of the evidence that they have against Tommy. Tommy is held over for a grand jury, but the judge orders that bond be set at $40,000, which is astonishingly low for a quadruple murder. And it reflects the judge's belief that the state doesn't have much of a case against Tommy. The Zigglers can easily pay the bond, but it's a Friday and Tommy isn't willing to pay the bondsman fee so he could be released immediately. Instead, Tommy waits out the weekend until his mother can cash out some holdings and pay the full amount of the bonds so he can just leave jail. Okay, so the state got through the preliminary hearing, but just barely. The judge had commented that the state didn't present a clear case against Ziggler. They showed me very little hard evidence. They didn't show me enough to deny bond. So they kind of just squeaked by. Yet over 45 years later, Tommy is still on death row. In Florida, if it's a capital case, which means the defendant is facing the death penalty, a preliminary hearing is not enough. A grand jury must return an indictment against the defendant as well. So after the preliminary hearing, Tommy will also have to be indicted by a grand jury if the state plans to pursue the death penalty. Which they do, but before I talk about the grand jury, I want to talk about what the defense was doing between the preliminary hearing and the grand jury. The defense team takes Tommy to a psychiatrist, a doctor Theodore Mackler, on March eleventh, nineteen seventy-six. Tommy was administered a healthy dose of sodium pentothal, which is commonly known as a truth serum. While under this drug, Tommy is questioned about the murders. He's speaks quietly, he seems docile, and he tells the exact same story that he's always told ever since the murders occurred, but with one addition. After he was shot, Tommy recalled hearing a white man's voice say, Maze has been hit, we'll have to get rid of him. Remember that Tommy couldn't remember if he had got a shot off before his gun jammed and he threw the gun at his attackers? Had Tommy actually shot Charlie and then Charlie's co-conspirators beat Charlie to death? Charlie's cause of death had been the beating, not the gunshot wound that he sustained. Dr. Mackler believed that Tommy was telling the truth. This gave his defense team some extra confidence in Tommy, which I don't know if they really needed it, because to me it looks like the state has no case against their client. I mean, he was convicted in his on death row, but I think it wasn't a, in spite of a lack of evidence thing and not out of abundance of evidence kind of thing. But Tommy's lawyers are really starting to believe in their client's innocence. Okay, back to the investigation. With no physical evidence implicating Tommy, Fry goes about trying to establish a motive. And how does one do this? Well, they basically destroy Tommy's good reputation. That's what you have to do when you don't have a case because the defendant is most likely innocent. The defendant has to be portrayed as cruel and deviant by the state. The good character of the defendant has to be impeached to a point where abhorrent behavior, absolutely the worst, would be expected from him. I would like to point out that the police already claim that they have the motive for the murders, the insurance money. So why are they busy trying to drum up a second motive when they have no physical evidence? Well, the first motive is weak. Sure, it's a lot of insurance money, but Tommy is loaded. He doesn't need any damn insurance money. And second, when you don't have physical evidence against an accused, a character assassination is a common tool used to advance a case, make the defendant different from the rest of us, someone capable of anything, including murder. They need a motive that will make people disgusted with Tommy. Mm-hmm. Tommy is a well-liked, successful businessman. What's Fry going to say about him? Well, it's the old tried-and-true method of making someone evil. Cast them as a pervert. Once you paint a person as sexually deviant, then people Will really think anything of them. Now, brace yourself for some serious homophobia here because Fry says that Tommy is a homosexual and that Eunice caught Tommy having sex with a man and that she wanted to divorce him. Not only do they accuse Tommy of being a homosexual, they also say he is involved in a ring of homosexual businessmen in the area. The tough thing is, there is absolutely no evidence of this. And there are no rumors about Tommy being gay. That is until the investigators start spreading the rumors themselves. Is there such a thing as misdirected homophobia? Because I kind of think that's what happens here. Tommy was a heterosexual man victimized by homophobia because of the time and the location. Now, let me get this straight. I don't consider homosexuality to be sexually deviant, but in the Deep South in 1975, rumors of homosexuality would ruin you, ruin your career, you would be shunned. Future, it's gone. So, by portraying Tommy as gay, the police have really lowered people's opinion of Tommy. When Tommy's investigators try to track down the source of all these rumors about Tommy being gay, it always comes back to the police and the sheriff's deputies. Not one single person had ever heard of these rumors before the murders. And it's not just rumors about Tommy's homosexuality. There is evidence that the scene may have been staged to give the crime homosexual undertones. And this is what a man gets for loving cats. Long after the trial, the defense finally learns the identities of the two secret informants used by Detective Frye and his chief Robert Thompson and Perry Edwards Jr., and these two are the original source of the rumors about Tommy being gay. Now, Perry Jr. is Eunice's brother and a hater of Tommy Ziegler and a hater before the murders, not just after. Perry Jr. was the only son of Perry in Virginia and extremely jealous of Tommy and his success. Tommy was close to Eunice's parents. They trusted Tommy and this pissed off Perry Jr. Immediately after the murders, Perry Jr. arrives in Winter Garden and as the only surviving Edwards family member and he tells investigators that Tommy is gay and that Eunice found out and when she caught him in bed with a man and that their parents hadn't just come down to visit for the holidays, but they had come down to rescue Eunice from her wretched marriage to a gay man and whisk her back to Georgia with them. The defense won't learn about Perry Edwards Jr. in his role role as a secret informant for the state until decades after Tommy's trial. In fact, Perry Jr. actually testified at Tommy's trial that his parents' visit to the Ziegler's had been a routine planned holiday visit. But oddly, this testimony doesn't match up with the information that he was secretly giving to Detective Fry. While preparing for the trial, Perry Jr. became very close friends with Detective Fry. I mean close friends. They slept over at each other's homes. This isn't a rumor. The men admit it. Adult male sleepovers. Rumor mill. Do your work glass houses assholes glass houses sure it could be an innocent friendship and it probably was but there is more evidence of a homosexual relationship between these two guys than between tommy and anybody else my point is no one likes it when people make baseless accusations about their sexual preferences so don't do it so when you throw shit out into the wind sometimes it comes back on you some call it karma, some call it a shit wind. So honestly, I don't think anyone was secretly gay in this story. I just don't like gay bashing. And I also don't like lying about someone being gay so you can convict them of a murder that they didn't commit. It's important to remember the time and the place we are talking about. It's the nineteen seventies in a small town in the deep south. If Tommy is homosexual, it will destroy his family business. His bright future would be gone immediately. So, yeah, hiding his sexuality could be a motive for murder, and it's probably a better mo- motive than that killing for money that you don't need. The problem is that Tommy isn't gay, and there is no evidence that he is gay. And also, why kill the in-laws? Just kill the wife if you are a guy that just. Does- homosexual that wants a divorce now there is a gay community in the area and it is important to note that not one homosexual ever admitted to having a sexual relationship with Tommy investigators spent a lot of time looking for a man who would claim to be in a relationship with Tommy so it wasn't from a lack of trying Remember Curtis Dunway, the employee at the furniture store? Well, he is a gay man. And while this was a secret in the 1970s, Curtis said that he had never heard any rumors about Tommy being gay before the murders. And as Tommy was his boss, if there were rumors about Tommy being gay, I would think that Curtis would have been aware of them. One gay man, Alan Dara, actually accused the investigators of trying to get him to falsely claim that he had a sexual relationship with Tommy but this man was honorable and he refused to lie. And this is major. This guy was in jail facing a murder charge and he claims the detective Fry told him if he would say that he had a romantic relationship with Tommy, they would drop the murder charges against him. The guy, well, he felt he could beat the charges. You know, he didn't do, commit this murder and he refused to lie. And he was right. He was acquitted of the murder. But this shows how desperate the state was to find a motive. They were willing to bribe people to lie. To let go an accused murderer, to let him go free. What else would they be willing to do? The only evidence of Tommy's supposed homosexuality is rumors. And rumors aren't evidence. And when Tommy's lawyers check Ellendara's visitor logs at the jail, they see Detective Fry's signature. Apparently, he had gone to visit Allendara on the date that Allendara claimed that Fry tried to bribe him into giving false testimony against Tommy. So there's evidence that this guy is telling the truth. So the defense is giving Tommy a truth serum. While the prosecution is desperately looking for a second motive and preparing for the grand jury. I know what you're thinking. The prosecution's case is so weak that they barely got through the preliminary hearing. How are they going to get a grand jury to return an indictment? But this is when detective Fry goes into overdrive and just starts spouting psychobabble that never really made any sense. And he really also dives deep into that rumor mill cesspool that he created about Tommy being incredibly cruel, And gay. The following is a quote from Detective Fry's grand jury testimony. Embrace your buns. It's a doozy. This is Detective Fry talking. You will note that each of the men are beaten, but none of the women are. Why is this so? Now, of course, this guy is going to answer his own question because he arrogantly thinks he's the only person that can. So he goes on to explain schools that I have been to say that this act can be interpreted as that of a homosexual a man trying to be bisexual during the time that he committed the beatings he's saying i'm a man i you see i'm a man i've got power okay but really dawn isn't that what you're saying to the grand jury when you spout this ridiculous bullshit look at me i'm smart i figured this all out when no one else could because i'm a man you see i'm a man and i got power Look at me, I could pretend to be a psychiatrist, too. Then Fry goes on to describe Tommy's father as passive and his mother as domineering. And because of that, according to Don Fry, uh, that makes Tommy a homosexual. First off, I want to call out whatever school that taught Don Fry this load of malarkey. Was it that blood spatter week long course in Herb McDonald's basement or Yale? I'd like to know because there is a difference between the two. Now, I'm not going to completely poo-poo his analysis. I think his how to make a homosexual recipe of just add a domineering mother is a little off. But I will say that children that feel they have no control over their own lives and feel completely dominated by a parent, well, that's a main ingredient in the recipe for making a sexual sadist. But that's not what we have here. I think Don Fry is looking in the wrong cookbook. And I think the reason that the men were beaten and the women weren't was that the men were able to resist in a more effective manner than Eunice and her mom. Eunice was shot in the back of the head while Virginia was struck with a fatal shot while she cowered in fear. Eunice, while young and fit, she didn't see it coming. So, how could she? You know, there's no way she could defend herself. Poor Virginia, I think she tried to flee to the front of the store to the windows and was shot, then shot again as she hunkered down in fright. This isn't an attack on women, ladies. Or me saying that we're not able to defend ourselves. I'm just being honest. We all react differently. Maybe today more women would fight back. But honestly, fighting back isn't much of an option when you're shot in the back of the head like Eunice. So not only does Fry start all these unfounded rumors about Tommy's homosexuality. He creates this image of Tommy as an incredibly cruel man who was capable of anything. Fry testified before the grand jury that Tommy had cut off his own dog's leg as a joke and that Tommy had tried to drown his father in a lake while his mother stood on the shore watching. But the problem is that none of this shit ever actually happened. But Fry couldn't ever let it go. Or ever admit that he was wrong when he was confronted with evidence from the family's veterinarian that the dog had been hit by a car, and that the vet had tried to set the leg but couldn't, and the leg had to be amputated by the vet, and that the dog lived for another 12 years, Fry actually said that the doctor's testimony only applied to that particular dog. The defense responded with, The one that went around for 12 years as a three-legged dog. Fry claimed that rumor is still kicking around. Sure it is. Thanks to you, shithead. There's absolutely no evidence that the Zigglers ever had another three-legged dog. Clearly, the three-legged dog was the one that was hit by the car, and the vet had to amputate its leg to save its life. They had a three-legged dog that was hit by a car. Fry tries to use that tragedy to show that Tommy had the heart of a murderer. What an asshole. Fry cannot admit that he was wrong. Instead, he's going to be like, Nope, maybe we had another three-legged dog. That's just a terrible quality in a person. Especially a police officer. And the lie about Tommy attempting to drown his father, all three family members denied that ever happened. And Fry couldn't recall who... Even told him that story. I mean, did anyone tell him that? Or did he just make it up? First, it's hearsay. But worse, we don't even know the source of the hearsay. He can't remember. Did you write it down? Maybe not. Maybe he just made it up. Who knows? <sighs> we couldn't even say... It. I mean, he even couldn't come up with well, the secret informant. This guy's just... Uh, does his genius ever start? <sighs> Okay, couldn't remember the source of the hearsay, but Friday let that stop him from repeating the story in front of a grand jury. Even though all of the people that were supposedly present at the attempted at drowning deny that it happened, including the supposed victim, this is still considered as, as evidence of Tommy's depravity, based on false allegations of homosexuality, and outright lies about Tommy trying to kill his father and cutting off his dog's leg. The state is able to get an indictment from the grand jury. Well done assholes. So Tommy is going to go on trial. And now thanks to the grand jury indictment, he will face the death penalty if convicted. Now let's talk a little bit more about the evidence. The police have eight guns that were recovered from the furniture store and Carter Stoneway's car. Tommy IDs five of them as his guns, and one is a gun that he had borrowed from Don Fickey. The police were able to trace the two unknown guns that were not Tommy's, and this is not done until after the preliminary hearing and after the grand jury indictment, which is terrible. Instead of spending all of their time trying to drum up rumors about Tommy being gay, the police should be tracking these two guns. You know, actual police work. The two unknown guns are an identical pair of 38 RG revolvers, a really cheap and crappy gun. Not the type of gun that Tommy normally purchased. They were both purchased brand new from a pawn shop by a man named Frank Smith, a friend of Edward Williams. Perry and Virginia were both shot with these guns, and it is likely that one of the RG's revolvers killed Eunice. These guns weren't just at the crime scene, Keep in mind they were murder weapons now this should make police take another look at edward williams he has just been tied to two of the guns found at the crime scene and recall that williams had already turned over to the police the actual gun that ballistic testing will show was used to kill both virginia and perry edwards Remember that Williams had said that Tommy had tried to shoot him with this gun and when it jammed, Tommy had given Williams the gun and Williams fled the scene. Well, like I said, that gun was used to kill Virginia and Perry and Williams headed after the murders. Combine that with the fact that Williams' friend had bought two of the other guns at the crime scene and that his truck was broken down in the real parking lot and completely wiped of prints. I think this adds up to suspicion. But the police never really questioned Williams about his account of that night. Williams was a man in need of money. That's a motive. Tommy had to call in a favor to get Williams' electric turned on in his new apartment because Williams had an overdue bill. And Tommy gave Williams money for the security deposit on this new apartment. When the fest investigators search Williams' truck, they find lots of overdue bills littered throughout the cab. Williams hadn't been consistently working over the past year, and it seems like he had to rely on unemployment benefits to supplement his income. Williams was clearly having financial problems. Could someone have offered Williams money to set up Tommy that night to bring him in to face a hit? Let's just reflect a moment. In Williams' story, Tommy just killed his family and then turns around and hands over their murder weapon to Williams, and then Tommy allows him to flee the scene. There were six other guns at the crime scene. Tommy could have used any of those guns to force Williams back into the store and set the scene and frame Williams for murder, but he didn't, he just let Williams leave or even shoot Williams in the parking lot and claim he shot him as he fled the murder scene. You just can't keep letting witnesses escape. According to the state at this point, in the night Tommy had already let Felton Thomas leave the scene, And then Williams was allowed to flee the scene. That's two witnesses that Tommy leaves alive. This just isn't making any sense. Even worse, when the gun that Williams said jammed, when Tommy tried to shoot him, when it was analyzed, it was determined that the gun hadn't actually jammed. It actually hadn't been loaded. According to the state, Tommy had planned out this murder to the closest detail over a period of months, but in the end, he tries to shoot a man with a gun that wasn't loaded? Which is it? Is Tommy a criminal mastermind or an idiot? He can't be both, but to believe the state's theory, you must think that Tommy is both a brilliant criminal and a bumbling fool. The police, well, they just refuse to look any closer at Williams. Williams has the gun that killed Virginia and Perry, and his friend is the the registered purchaser of two of the guns used in the murders. Williams should be a suspect, but Williams is able to explain his connection to those two guns purchased by Frank Smith, and here is the story that Williams tells the police. Williams says that Tommy asked him if he knew anyone that could get untraceable guns. Edward Williams said that he knew a guy. Williams contacted his friend, Frank Smith, who went and bought the guns with his own money for Tommy in June of 1975. Smith claims that during a phone call, Ziegler told him that he wanted two untraceable guns. So Smith buys the guns a couple weeks later, brand new from a pawn shop, and Williams picked up the guns from Frank Smith in a brown paper bag and gave the guns to Tommy. That is the story that Frank Smith and Edward Williams told. But Tommy completely denies that any of this ever happened. Tommy said he never asked Williams about untraceable guns and that he never even talked to Frank Smith. Now, according to Smith, he never physically met Tommy, but Smith does say that they talked on the phone once about the guns. And after this, Smith went out and bought the two guns himself with his own money, six months before the murders. I don't seriously believe that this guy fronted the money to purchase this for a stranger. Why would he do that? That makes no sense. Williams claimed that he gave Smith $159 he got from Tommy for the two guns later after they were already bought. What if Tommy had said he didn't want these guns? They were super crappy, not the type that he normally would buy. Seriously, I mean, a trigger bent on one of the guns and it became inoperable during the murders. They were shit. And Tommy could have told Frank Smith to forget it. And Smith would have been out of the $100 that he paid for the guns. And these are people that aren't in a financial position to lose 100 bucks. It seems weird. But really, what I don't like is all this talk about untraceable guns both Smith, Williams, and another witness that I'll get to later, they all claimed that Tommy was looking for untraceable guns months before the murders. But these guns that Smith got weren't untraceable. They were clearly traceable to a pawn shop where they were sold brand new to him. An untraceable gun is a gun that can't be tracked back to its original purchaser, its owner. Such as a stolen gun. Not a gun that someone else buys from a store. That's actually a super traceable gun. This is just so stupid. Once the cops finally decided to trace the gun's ownership, it took very little effort to find out who had purchased each gun at the crime scene. These guns were clearly traceable. That's how we know who bought them. Besides, if Tommy really wanted untraceable guns so he could commit these murders, why were there six other guns at the crime scene that were all connected to Tommy? Five of the guns were owned by Tommy, and the sixth was loaned to him by his friend, Don Ficke. And these guns weren't just at the crime scene. Six of the recovered guns were used on the night of the murders. If Tommy wanted to use untraceable guns, then the other guns that he owned in his name wouldn't have been in play at all. Only the so-called untraceable guns would have been used. Also, no attempt was made to remove the serial number on these guns, which would have actually made them untraceable. These guns were highly traceable, as evidenced by the fact that the police found the buyer of the guns in a matter of days. But Williams backed up Smith's story. They they connect, you know, they got each other on this. Williams says the same thing as Smith. Smith says, says the same thing as Williams. And Williams added that Tommy first started talking about untraceable guns in March or April of 1975, meaning that Tommy had been planning the murder for eight or nine months. Now, keep in mind that Williams' original statements to investigators In those statements, he made no mention of Tommy ever asking him to procure untraceable guns for him. Williams never mentioned that at the the preliminary hearing or before the grand jury. It was once the guns were actually traced back to Frank Smith, his friend, that Williams said anything about Tommy wanting untraceable guns. I will say it again because it bears repeating. Williams never mentioned Frank Smith and Tommy wanting untraceable guns, until the ownership of the two guns was traced to a friend of Williams. How was this not making the investigators take a serious look at Edward Williams? Well, it's partly because the police waited so darn long to trace the guns. They had assumed that they were all bought by Tommy, and the two cheap RGs weren't traced back to Frank Smith until after the preliminary hearing, and not long before the trial was set to start. By that point, it was just too late. Tommy had already been arrested and the trial was set to begin soon. No matter how much evidence kept coming in that would cast doubt on William's story and make him look guilty, the state isn't willing to back down at this point, even if they were wrong. Okay, so according to the investigators, Tommy started planning about getting quote untraceable guns eight months before the murders but he only offered the TV to Charlie Mays the very afternoon of the murders. Seems awfully last minute for a murder that had been planned for eight months, waiting to the day of to find your patsy. Tommy does all this setup months in advance, but he leaves it to the day of the murder to find someone to pin the murders on? I hope some people are following me on this. So much planning months in advance, but also so much left to the very last minute. One of the brilliant, brilliant moments in Fatal Flaw by Philip Finch is when he lists all of these problems with the case against Tommy and he points out, what if Charlie had never shown up for the TV that night? What if he changed his mind about the TV or Charlie's truck broke down? Tommy's wife and in-laws would have already been dead in this store and Tommy wouldn't have had anyone to pin it on. For a murder that was supposed to be planned for eight months, major components were left to the very last minute. By the way, that book, Fatal Flaw, is truly amazing. It takes a very confusing case. It makes it much more understandable. And it lets you make your own decisions, which I find very interesting in a crime book. It is probably one of the best true crime books ever written, and I cannot recommend it more. And I'm going to say this is where I'm going to leave you. The preliminary hearing has been held, and Tommy is released on bond. A grand jury indicts Tommy, largely based on lies about Tommy's homosexuality and his cruelty to his father and pets. Now the state can seek the death penalty. The state already has two witnesses that implicate Tommy in the murders, but next we will talk about the forensics and how the lab results don't support the state's theory that Tommy murdered his family and framed Charlie Mays for their deaths.